Thank you, Brother Dale. Thank you, choir. Thank you, orchestra. Thank you, everybody in the church for singing and praising this morning. I'd like to call our attention first and foremost, this will not be our primary text, uh, but I would like for us to start this morning with a reading of God's Word out of John chapter 17. John chapter 17, many of you, uh, this is a very familiar text to you. Um, I certainly am not going to try and point out anything different to you through it, but a lot of the emphasis on today's message will be about unity and the truth that it brings, standing for it, avoiding disunity. We will uh, we'll also look at some enemies of unity within the, the Christian church, but first and foremost, we're going to read from John chapter 17 to see what Jesus describes in his prayer to the Heavenly Father before he is betrayed and crucified at the kind of unity that exists now, currently, as well as the unity that awaits every believer with God. Starting in John chapter 17, verse 17, we'll read this text all the way through the end of chapter 17. We'll pray and then we'll begin our examination of God's word. John 17, verse 17, Jesus, in the midst of his prayer, says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Verse 20, I do not ask for those only, for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you love me. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made it known to them your name. And I will come to make it known and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, it is not difficult. It is very easy to see the extent of disunity across the world. With our own, within our own families, within our state, this nation, globally, as well as historically, Lord, help us to understand that we live in an abnormal age. For as long as the United States has existed, to make, to make it to where each individual citizen is able to pursue life and liberty and inalienable rights that we have and bestowed upon us by you, the freedom that we have to, to worship in the way that we are able to because of your truth. Lord, this is not normal. Throughout Christian history, there has been disunity. There have been enemies who are opposed to the Christian message. 
Christians who are so-called Christians within the church who seek to disrupt unity because it is founded in the unchanging character of you and your word. And now, Lord, we are beginning to see the unraveling of the abnormal. And it is becoming what has for centuries been normal. The desire to worship ourselves and our physical existence, to do exactly what Paul said in the book of Romans, to suppress the truth in our unrighteousness, As Paul said in Philippians, to make our God our belly, this is not new. And Lord, as we stand in a moment of history where we have so much freedom, where we have so much, so many things available to us, while we should be standing firm even more because we, we are able to see the truth of your word throughout centuries of faithful biblical Christians teaching these things and passing these things down to us, Lord, we stand more divided than ever before. Lord, sanctify us by truth. Your word is truth, and in it, through your word, do we find unity with you, our triune God. Lord, open our hearts and our minds this morning to your word that we may behold the glory of your name. And it's in that name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. We will be, for the majority of our time, in Exodus chapter 34. I do not need to belabor any points that pastor has missed since we have finished Exodus last year. Pastor did a wonderful job walking us through the story of the Israelite people in the midst of their wanderings, in the midst of following God. There are so many practical applications that exist for the contemporary Christian church from Exodus living as sojourners and exiles in a period of history where nobody wants them. The fact that Israel was God's elect people was not, it, Scripture says very clearly in the, in the first five books of the Bible, God did not choose Israel because they were the most peoples, not because they were greatest, because they had the most to offer him, but because of his love for them. The Christian church throughout centuries is able to apply this promise as well, knowing that we live in a time, we live in a culture, we live in an age that does not desire the God of Scripture. The blessings of God, sure. Perhaps even the morals of God. There's a reason why those who do not follow, those who do not ascribe to the existence of the triune God, still lock their doors at night. Because they believe inherently, because it was bestowed by them through the conscience that God has created each person with, that to follow a true moral standard is better than not to. But we have to understand who God is according to what he has said about himself, not according to what we desire him to be, not according to what culture dictates for us to believe about our own existence or about the existence of God. The Israelite people, just like you and me. They got it. 
and then they didn't. Then they got it again, and then they didn't. Constantly, back and forth, faithful, unfaithful. Faithful and unfaithful. The thing that never changed was their constant change. What you could consistently grab from the book of Exodus is that they were consistently inconsistent. But the book of Exodus is not about the Israelite people. The book of Exodus is not about the spiritual heritage we have with them as modern-day Christians. The book of Exodus, much like every other book of the Bible, is about one primary character. Sovereignly ruling and guiding all things according to his good pleasure and the counsel of his own will. It is about God, first and foremost. The disunity that we experience and that we can see on social media, that we see in the news, that you might experience at work, at school, in your own families, is because a lot of the time of a misunderstanding. Maybe you're not willing to understand another person's perspective. Maybe there's no way on earth the other person that you disagree with could ever understand your perspective. But disunity is primarily rooted in disagreement. And within the Christian faith, this ought not be so, but we see it in many various, different, many various ways. One of which that has been around for a long time, we just call it different things. It can be known as liberalism. It can be known as progressivism. It can be known as humanism, Marxism, virtually any kind of ism. That's sets mankind at the center of all things. Mankind at the center of all things, the way that man thinks, the way that man feels, the way in which man is able to receive good things and be able to bestow on each other good things, bad things, whatever it may be, man is at the heart. Man is the governing authority for that which is or is not permissible. This is the source of disunity. When we try to emphasize our human man-made perspectives, that's human disunity. When it comes to divine disunity, though, look no further than the very character of God himself. He is distinct from his creation, unlike anything else in creation. That's what it means to be the creator. But the disunity, in the negative sense, through God, is because of what he has said and because of what he has said about himself. The disunity between God's chosen people and everybody else. The thing that is at the heart of that disunity is the very character and word of God. That's why Jesus is able to say when he, in the Gospels, do not believe that I have come to bring peace. I have come to bring a sword to divide families, to divide cultures, to divide those who are my people from those who are not my people. The unity that I started with in John 17 is a unity for the very people of God. And it must be treasured and prioritized so long as it is firmly rooted and founded in the Word of God and in what He has revealed about Himself. 
We see this in Exodus chapter 34. For the next two weeks, the, to, we're going to look at two aspects that are at the heart of disunity amongst the church, amongst Christians, from various perspectives. Two things that are the leading cause, I believe, of disunity as it relates to God's character. His love and His justice. His grace, His compassion, His mercy, His righteousness, His authority, His justice. These two things are pitted against each other in numerous ways to try and present God in a way in which we most enjoy. And you can go to the extreme on any of the two spectrums. If you go to the extreme of love, then God is all loving. Virtually saying God has no standards. He can, he can love anybody. He can forgive anybody. Um, there's, there's, no, uh, there, there's no justice required. There's no need to, to, to have anything um, held against your, your account, credited towards you as unrighteousness. God can, can love uh, no, no matter what. There's a danger in that. To go to the other side, though, is to, to make God totally and completely unloving and to see his justice and his righteousness and his wrath as something that is not for the good of people. Again, we do not live in a period of history where things are new. I mean, it's very clear to us. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. It just fades away and then repackages itself. Kind of like that gift at Christmas that nobody seems to want to keep. They just re, they keep regifting it. They keep repackaging it. They, they kind of wait for a little bit of time, and then hopefully everyone's forgotten about the gift, so we're just going to wrap it up, present it, and give it to somebody else. There's nothing new under the sun. The idea of God's love and justice being enemies with each other has been around so long as there have been people to bring up the obvious discrepancies between these two things rather than allowing God to speak clearly about who he says that he is. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, Yahweh, this is when Moses is invited back up to the mountain of Sinai one last time to receive new tablets after the ones that he had broken because of the grief and the disbelief that he had with the Israelite people at the base of the mountain making for themselves a golden calf image. He's invited back up by the Lord to receive new tablets reaffirming the covenant that God had made with his people. And God even says, even in verse 5, that he will meet him there, reveal himself, proclaiming his own name. Verse 6, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, notice the repetition here, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious. So far, so good. Right? Slow to anger. Okay. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. All right. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Well, that's the kind of loving God that I want to I want to believe, right? That's the kind of you, you sure this is in the Old Testament? This sounds very much like the New Testament Jesus. Second half of verse seven, though. But this God, who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness 
who keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and transgression and sin, will by no means clear the guilty. By no means turn away unjustly from their sin. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. The children's children to third and fourth generations. There appears on the surface, if we isolate these two concepts, to be an apparent contradiction of who God truly is, forcing many people to pick which one you want. Do you want to pick the loving God? who is gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love, faithful, keeps, uh, forgives the iniquity of all? Who wouldn't want that God? Live your life however you want to. Do what makes you happy. In the end, it's all love. All we need is love. Love is all we need. You go the opposite direction, though, and you only see him who will not clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You are driven to try and earn this just, wrathful God's favor. The motivation here becomes what you can do or what you can offer because you're terrified that he will find one ounce, one shred of guilt that you have committed and damn you for all eternity. Church family, these two concepts are in such harmony with each other. They cannot be divided from each other, but they have to be understood in light of God's revealed character and how we are to relate to him. The title of this message is The Loving Justice of God. Next week will be The Just Love of God. Because again, you cannot separate these two concepts. The loving justice of God. Notice that loving is in the, it's going to take you back to English class. Loving is in the place of the adjective. It is describing the justice the justice is the primary noun there, but it is an extension of the object, which is God himself. God's justice is at all times loving. There has been a concept, again, there has been many thoughts throughout all of human history that has tried to find discrepancies about God in order to humanize him, to make him somebody that we are most comfortable with. And when we encounter a text like this to where God presents himself both as loving and as, uh, as, as righteous and just, there appears to be this, from the human perspective, contradiction, leading people to abandon one in favor of the other. It's come up, this, again, this, concept, this, this comes up way back in early church history, this idea that there are two gods that scripture presents. There's the God of the Old Testament and there's the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is defined by his wrath, his vengefulness, his, his, his justice, all of these things that are considered to be in the negative sense. The New Testament, however, we receive an understanding of who God is based on his love, his compassion, his mercy, his grace. This is a false view of who God truly is. Enemies to unity are false teachings. False teachers. False teachers rely on people who either are Christians or claim to be Christians not truly having a firm understanding of who God is according to what he has said. We must be ready to identify these things. And sometimes they are so subtle, they sound right. 
they sound true. And we don't have to look very far to see these things that sound so true and yet are so condemning. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, atheism, any worldview that pits God against himself in order to exalt man's ability. Jeremiah 23, 16. Jeremiah 23, 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, fulfilling you or filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. Jude, half-brother of Jesus. Jude verses 3 and 5. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Another enemy to, to unity is this idea that we, we... It's the idea of tribalism. Now, that may sound foreign to you. But this idea, it's, it's, it's considered derogatory, the, the idea of tribalism, because of how rigid the standard is for those outside of the contained tribe. Think about politically, racially, ethically. The tribalist would say, anything outside of what I think cannot possibly be true. For the Christian, we have a justification for understanding this, but it's not driven by hatred of the other, which is what tribalism is. It is driven by mercy and justice. It is driven by the love of God and the righteousness of God. John chapter 12, verse 43, when Jesus is interacting with some of the teachers of the law. Back in verse, uh, verse 41, actually for a little bit of context, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Another enemy to, to disunity is this idea of sentimentality that has rapidly engulfed not just culture itself, but has rapidly engulfed much of the Christian church in America. That if it sounds unloving, it's wrong. If it's not kind, it should be abandoned. I'm not advocating for being unkind. I'm not advocating for being unloving. But sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to plant your feet firmly in the Word of God and say, no. Not driven out of hatred like tribalism is of, the other, of those who disagree with you, but driven out of love, out of a desire for them to understand the truth that sets all men free. Psalm 119, 89 your word, O Lord, is firmly fixed in the heavens. It does not change, not based upon man's opinions, not based upon what culture dictates. It is firmly fixed in the heavens. God is not schizophrenic. He is not one way in one text and another way in another one. When we look at the nature of God existing as one being in three persons, we have to understand to divide and divorce love from justice is to have a skewed perception of the Trinity. Everything that Jesus, or everything that God did in the Old Testament that is categorized by revenge, wrath, doom, destruction, 
is 100%, 100% in accord with Jesus' full approval and execution of it. God the Son is the second member of the Trinity, and God himself cannot be disunified. He cannot be divided. Therefore, everything God does in the Old Testament is with 100% approval and 100% execution that Jesus affirms. The same as in the New Testament where God is presented as a God of love, mercy, grace, and compassion. The God of the Old Testament who is characterized by gloom and destruction is the same God in the New Testament who proclaims that all who call upon my name shall be saved. But sentimentality, pitting God against himself as though he is schizophrenic, divides the church. But God is the same constantly, no matter what. He cannot change. He does not change. He is what he has revealed himself to be. Colossians 2.8. Do not let others take you captive by worldly ideologies. Acts chapter 17. The Berean church tests all things according to the scriptures. So when we see a text like Exodus 34, how God is slow to anger, merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and transgression and sin. And then he goes on to say that by no means will clear the guilty. How do those things go together? Scripture is the greatest interpreter of Scripture. There has to be a level of which we understand that no one can explain God better than the way God explains himself. And we know this because he has revealed himself to be this way. Proverbs 11. Kind of feels like a sword drill, everybody. I'm sorry. Proverbs 11, verse 21. Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Proverbs 17, 15. This is where so much of the misunderstanding of God is anchored in. Again, it's an isolation of certain texts. Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination of the Lord. When you read that and isolate it away from what the rest of Scripture is teaching, it very much presents this idea that God's justice has to be in opposition to God's love. And God's love has to be in opposition to God's justice. But when we... When we read scripture in its entirety, in its totality, in the way in which it is to be understood and, and, and perceived and, and concluded, when we are able to see texts like Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, verse 5, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David, who speaks of the blessing of the one who God counts righteous apart from his works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. These two concepts are not at war with each other the way that many Christians, would, many Christians within secular, with secular mindsets Many Christians with progressive-leaning ideologies will want it to present, to present it that way. Like I said, unity is to be treasured and prioritized so long as it is founded on the truth of God's revelation. That's the standard. God himself is the standard by which we understand how we are to be unified, not only with each other, but with God himself. The inverse is also important to understand because unity is to be discarded and abandoned if it is founded on the authority of man's standards. This is to, to the same concept being brought up in Philippians 3 where, where Paul says 
those who have made themselves an enemy of the cross of Christ, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame because they have set their minds on earthly things. Psalm 50, verse 20, 21. Psalm 50, 21. So much of this misunderstanding and this disunity comes from trying to make God like us. God himself says very clearly in Psalm 50, 21, you thought that I was one like yourself. I'm not. God is not like us. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Yes, that does allow for a little bit of mystery to, to understand the true depth of things, just the same way that we will not truly, deeply understand everything about what the Trinity is and how it's comprised because we are limited by our understanding within our own finite minds. However, it does not fully merit any kind of discarding that doctrine because it is upon the triune God that all things exist, have their being. There are many attributes of God, and there is a concept that, that seeks to understand the attributes of God in terms of how they are presented as a whole. It is, a, it is an old doctrine referred to as the simplicity of God. This does not seek to, to try and explain God as though he is some simple being who is easy to understand. Rather, it is seeking to present all that God is, he has. God is all that he has. He has all that he is. He is not some love, some righteousness, some mercy, some justice. In fact, God is love, but also God is righteous. Psalm 89, 14. God again presents himself in this way. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. These two concepts are indivisible of one another. A man named A.W. Tozer, I'm sure many of you have heard of him, made this comment about the attributes of God. What comes to your mind first when you think of God is the most important thing about you. Why is that? Because the thing that comes into your mind when you first think about God will automatically and naturally flow into how you live your life. Many, many people want to say that God is one way, and yet they live their life in a completely different way, which actually goes to show that they actually believe about God in the way that they live. You may cry for unity, but if you are tearing apart Scripture in the way that pits God against his own nature, you do not truly love God in the way that he has presented here. In fact, you have formed a golden calf yourself and made him, rather than the lion that roars from Zion, into a tame house cat. A more contemporary example of this, uh, this idea is from Pastor Vody Bauckham. He's actually a president of a divinity school in uh, Osaka, Zambia. But he says, the modern church is producing passionate people with empty heads who love the Jesus they don't know very well. Because there's this idea, give me just enough. Give me just enough to know a little bit about God, and then from there, it's left up to the person on Sunday to, to communicate everything else I need to know. From there, it's up to my spouse to lead and guide my family the way that is needed. And men, sometimes, we abdicate that rule to our wives. And it ought not be so. Jeremiah said it best in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. We sang about it earlier. My boast is in nothing less. But Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, Do not boast in your wisdom, let not the strong boast in their strength. But he who boasts, boast in this, 
that he understands and knows me. He understands me and knows me. And the beauty of that is, is that in fact in Jeremiah 24, 7, it's a great verse to know, 24, 7, Jeremiah, or God promises through the prophet Jeremiah, I will give them a heart to know me. I will be their God and they will be my people. Back in Jeremiah 9, though, he says, Behold, there are days coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, those in Egypt, those in Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, all those who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair for all the nations are uncircumcised and the house of Israel are uncircumcised in their hearts. It is possible. It is possible for an individual to occupy the space of a church and have no true life of the Spirit within them. It is true to go through life thinking, I come to church, I read my Bible, therefore I'm a good Christian. And it is entirely possible for that person at the end of their lives, though moral as they have been their entire lives, and as, a, as faithful to attending church as they have been, to stand before God their creator at the end of their lives and for him to say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. There are many people who dwell in eternal damnation currently who never swore, who never drank, who never committed adultery, and yet the Spirit of God did not exist within them. And God was just for sending them to their eternal destination. The same way in which He is just in extending mercy and grace to those who have seen the depth of their sin and thrown themselves at the feet of His mercy. Because they understand the only thing to boast of in this life is in knowing God. And He is knowable. God's justice and His love are uniquely individual. These two things do have their place within the attributes of God. It is not, it is not as though these two things are the same thing. It is the fact that they are separate, uniquely individual things, but they are in harmony at all times within God. God's justice and his love are divinely intertwined. You cannot separate the one from the other because we see the full picture of it. We see the full, simultaneous picture of God's love and his justice where? At the cross. It is through Christ that people have access to the Father. Think about it. Anytime Moses went up on the mountain... It's because God called him to. But many times, this time in particular in Exodus chapter 34, Moses was told to come alone. No one else was even allowed to touch the mountain. No, no sheep herders were allowed to go to it. It was exclusively called to Moses to come to the mountain, to commune with God, and for God to reveal himself and to declare who he was the same way in which he declared himself in Exodus chapter 3, But here, we see the limitation of God's call because Moses was the only one who got to go. In Christ, everyone who calls upon the just, righteous, holy name of God gets to go up on the mountain. Not because they are more loving or deserving, not because they have something better to offer than anyone else, but because it is the righteous standard for God to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to provide Jesus Christ as our sacrifice. God's justice and his love are extensions of his holiness Isaiah chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 4 show us two very clear pictures of what is taking place in the heavenly realm night and day over and over again. It's actually not night and day. It's, it's constantly bright in that realm because the presence of God is fully there. But day to day they pour forth speech 
inhabitants of that realm declare what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Not loving, loving, loving. Not just, just, just. Compassionate, compassionate, compassionate. Righteous, righteous, righteous. It is holy, holier, holiest. The only response to seeing God for who he truly is is to do exactly what Isaiah did when he was encountered the holiness of God. His first immediate reaction was to throw himself down and say, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell on a land of people of unclean lips. The moment he saw the holiness and the righteousness of God, he knew who he truly was. God's justice and his love are extensions of his holiness, and they exist in eternal harmony with one another. Here is why. From what I see clearly taught throughout the entirety of Scripture, here is why the majority of the American gospel, evangelical presentation of Christ to the lost world is lost on so many people. Starting at the cross of Christ, it seems like that would be the place to start, but starting at the cross of Christ presents issues for the person who does not understand their need for the Savior. It neglects the sovereign plan of God to provide a Savior to atone for their sins so that they might truly understand who they are in light of who He is. You cannot truly understand the depth of God's love until you see Him as a just and righteous creator. He has every right to judge. In Revelation 19, we'll finish with this. In Revelation 19, verses 1 and 2, we see a picture of God's justice and His judgment and His righteousness being executed upon those who are not truly His people. And you know what's happening as people are, as God's true people are witnessing this judgment taking place, they are applauding. They are cheering for his justice because it is good and it is the most loving thing. A judge who allows anyone who has committed a violent crime or any kind of crime against an individual, a judge who allows that criminal to go free out of love is entirely unloving to the person who was the, the crime was committed against. Justice has to be served, not because it is some ethereal entity that exists outside of God, but because it's who God truly is, and yet he is at the same time infinitely loving. This is the reason why Gen the, the, the entire Bible starts with Genesis 1-1 and not Matthew 1-1. We need to understand, we cannot truly understand who we are until we understand who he is, and he gets to be the one who determines who he is, not us. Christian, I, I pray that you would cling to the unity that exists within Christ himself, with his heavenly Father and with the Holy Spirit. And I want to encourage you with this. This is a declaration from Christians throughout church history, written in confessional style, that this is who our God is. The Lord our God is but one living, is only living and true God. He is the only living and true God, whose substance is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, indivisible, without part, body, without parts, without passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. He is immutable, meaning he does not change. He is immense. He is eternal. He is incomprehensible. He is almighty. He is in every way infinite and most holy, 
most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own unchanging, most righteous will for his own glory. Most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Christian, cling to Christ. Cling to the standard of his word. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I, I not only invite you, I urge you, I plead with you, repent of your sins and put your faith and your trust in Christ and not yourself. Only in doing and throwing yourself upon the mercy of God's loving kindness, his loving justice that he has presented for us through Christ can we have true relationship with the creator of our souls. Be on guard against the deceptions. Be on guard against disunity and have your feet firmly planted in the word of God in order to understand that which is truly from him and not of our own doing. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, these are truths that have been the pillar of your people for generations. Attributes that we need to cling to in the darkest of times. The understanding of them, to, to examine them against your word, not in accordance to what we want or what we think about them, but in accordance to what you have said about yourself. Lord, forgive us Forgive us for the ways in which we try to tame you, make you more palatable, make you more presentable to the world rather than standing firm in your word and proclaiming, thus says the Lord, the God who is merciful, who is gracious, and compassionate and extends love, steadfast love to a thousand generations is the same God who will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. We take comfort in knowing that you cannot change. The way in which we are to live our lives ought to be a reflection of how deeply we know you. This is not to say that it is possible to become perfect in this life, that's, that is false. But that we ought to continue to strive to know you more. To grow in our knowledge of your word. All things are beneficial so long as they help us to understand your word more. And if things do not help us understand your word more, then they are not necessary. May we grow in our knowledge of you that we may love you more and love your people the way that you have called us to do so. In your name that we pray, amen.